For those that I haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Matt Morton. I'm the teaching pastor at our Creekside campus. And this morning, we're going to continue our Big Ideas of the Bible series by talking about the church. So that's going to be the focus of our discussion today. And uh, this week, as I was talking with my kids about the sermon, they asked me, what are you talking about on Sunday? And I said, I'm talking about the church. And uh, my eight-year-old daughter, Abigail, said, well, you should sing some church songs And uh, I said, yeah, we should. And we just did. So check on that one. And then she said, you should also do the rhyme. Now, uh, some of you are thinking, what rhyme are we talking about? Others of you probably already know. We're going to do this together. So get your two hands and uh, intertwine them like this. Now, here's the thing. I can't make you do this, but I can see whether you are or not. And some of you are going to go and You may have lunch with your kids after church and they will say, what'd you do in church? And you'll say, the pastor had us do the church and steeple rhyme with our hands. And you don't want to admit that you didn't participate. Uh, That will reduce your moral authority with the kids and they will turn to a life of crime. So I can't make you do it. I'm just going to strongly recommend it. Okay, so intertwine your fingers together. Here we go. Here is the church. Here is the steeple, right? Open the door and see all the people, right? Now, I learned uh, the second half like this. You take your hands and put them a different way. You say, here is the church. Here is the steeple. Open the door and where are the people? Now, it was many years before I realized the people actually are on the roof. They've moved up to the top of the building. Maybe they're watching fireworks or something like that. I don't know. But as I thought about this rhyme this week, it occurred to me, I have no idea what that's trying to communicate. That said, the second part of that rhyme, the the last question, where are the people? That's a question that I think we could legitimately ask when we think about the state of the church in the United States and around the world. If you look at statistics for the United States, you will find that somewhere around 70% of our country says they are Christian. About 50% of our country says they're Protestant. Another 20% says they are Catholic. So 70% of our country. But what's interesting is when researchers determine how many Christians are sitting in church week to week, it's only 20% of those who say that they're Christians who actually regularly attend a church service, right? So that means roughly 14% of our country on any given week is in church, okay? It's a small number. Why is it that only 20% of Christians are attending church regularly? Only 20% at best are connected and growing with a body of believers. It's hard to get a clear answer to that. Some people say it's because they have problems with religion or they had a bad experience in a church. I think fundamentally, most people would just say this, that I'm not convinced going to church, participating in church really adds anything to my spiritual life. Why should I go sit with a group of people and listen to a guy talk and sing songs in public, an exercise that makes most people uncomfortable? Why should I do that when I can listen to a sermon in my room on my computer? 
And if I want to sing the songs we sang this morning, I can get out my phone and I can download them and put headphones on and I can sing the same songs. And so I think most people are convinced the church does not contribute to their spiritual growth. So why be a part of one? Well, we're going to look at that this morning. And it it, it seems odd to me to give a sermon on the value of church to the people who actually are here. That said, I think for those of us who are attending and connected to a body of believers and connected to the church, it's important that we understand why. It's important for us, I think, that we understand that the body of Christ, the church, is not like any other gathering of people when we get together. Because the church is the organization specifically created by Jesus Christ that he has built and that he says he will protect and that he has commissioned to go into the world to proclaim and represent him so that when the body of Christ gathers together and the Holy Spirit is present, there is a power present among God's people that is present in no other group. And so we gather not merely to sing songs, not merely to hear a sermon, but because there is a power and presence of Jesus Christ among us when we gather. And there is growth that happens when we are together that happens in no other setting. If you think about Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus posed to his disciples the question, who do you say I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you'll remember Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but it was revealed to you by my father who is in heaven. And then he goes on to say, and you are Peter. And on this rock, he says, I will build my church. That is on the foundation of your confession that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus says, I will build the church. I will sustain the church. I will protect the church. Jesus loves the church. It matters to him. And so it's important for us as men and women who follow Jesus, to understand why he loves the church. What is the church? What marks a church as opposed to any other organization or group of people? What are we called to do? We're going to look at those questions this morning because uh, the scripture makes it plain to us That the church, when it is serving Jesus Christ, as we're called to do, is an organization that has potential for a significant, powerful, supernatural impact. Not only on one another, but in the world at large. And the first century church had a powerful impact on the culture of their day, on the world of their day, on many of the problems that we face today that they also faced then because they gathered together and they reminded one another of who Jesus is and what God had done and then went out into the world to proclaim that message to anybody who would listen. So we want to look at that for a few minutes this morning. What is the church? Who, who is the church? What marks it? And what do we do? So as we begin, let's start with the first question then. Who is the church? When we talk about the church, what are we talking about? Well, as you look throughout 
the New Testament. The Greek word that is usually translated church is this word ekklesia. Ekklesia simply refers to an assembly or gathering of people. Uh, In ancient Greek literature, in fact, ecclesia doesn't always have to refer uh, just to a religious gathering. It refers to a gathering of any people who get together for a common purpose. Sometimes it refers to a political gathering or a gathering around an interest. So think for a moment about Texas A&M. I read on their website this week that there are more than a thousand student organizations at Texas A&M. We are some of the meetingest people on the planet. Uh, Among those organizations are a variety of interest groups. Here are some of the more interesting ones. The Freestyle Underground Street Dancers. The Texas A&M Belly Dance Association. The Order of Aggie Illusionists. Sounds like a fun one, although I assume the meetings are invisible. The... uh, Texas A&M Mountain Sports Club for all of the mountains in the area that they go climb. The Quidditch team, if you're into Harry Potter and want to play Quidditch, I assume without actually flying. All right, there's a club for every interest. In the broad sense of the word ecclesia, that's what those would be. They are assemblies or gatherings of people gathered around a common purpose. Uh, In the New Testament, typically it refers to the people of God when they gather together to praise him, to worship him, to hear from his word, to serve one another and to serve the community. That's an ecclesia. In the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament at times, ecclesia refers to Israel. As you look through the New Testament, when we see this word ecclesia or church, there's two senses in which the original writers uh, intend that word. One is what we might call the universal church uh, or church with a big C. If you read books about the church or literature about the church, you might see sometimes church with a big C. And then there's local churches or church with a little C, a church. So there's the church and a church. Uh, If you go and read the Apostles' Creed, right? in fact, one of the songs we sang this morning was loosely based on the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit, three in one, and so on. Loosely based on one of the early creeds of the Christian faith. If you read that creed, you will find uh, this statement of belief in the Catholic Church with a little c. Uh, That word Catholic, before the advent of what we know as the Roman Catholic Church, simply meant universal, the worldwide church. It's a reference to all who believe in Jesus Christ, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of race, regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of era. All who believe in Jesus Christ are a part of church with a big C, the universal church, no matter which denomination they may belong to. And then there are local churches. Most of the time in the New Testament, the word ecclesia refers to the local gatherings. Uh, But there are times where the writers talk about the universal church. So you see in the book of Colossians, for example, that and he, that is Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. That is, the church is organized under Jesus Christ. He's the leader of the church with a big C. Again, in the book of Ephesians, God placed all things under his feet 
and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Every person who has trusted in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and eternal life is a part of the church. All right, so the church is a gathering of men and women who believe in Jesus Christ, and it also represents all of those who trust in Jesus everywhere. Because of that, the church is a group that is diverse, but also unified. A group that is diverse, but also unified. Because the church includes people from all ethnicities, races, male and female, young and old, rich and poor, regardless of status, all who trust in Jesus Christ belong to the church. So that Paul will say in Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now he's not literally saying that those distinctions are non-existent. Instead he is saying that all of us in Jesus Christ uh, stand in need of salvation and have been given salvation by the death and resurrection of Christ. And all who trust in Christ then can gather together regardless of whether they're a Jew or a Greek, slave or free, male or female. We all are one in Christ Jesus. We all stand equal before Christ Jesus as his worshipers and his redeemed people. The first century world was deeply marked by racial and socioeconomic division. There was Jew versus Gentile. There was slave versus free. There were even divisions between Greek-speaking Jews and Hebrew-speaking Jews. The, The racism and tribal differences in the early world were at least as significant as the ones we face today in our country and in our world. And yet the beautiful thing about the body of Christ was that it was a group of people that modeled and proclaimed reconciliation and unity. And if there is one organization in the world that ought to model and proclaim reconciliation amongst all groups, it's the church of Jesus Christ. And that happened in the early church as Jew and Greek and slave and free and male and female gathered together to worship Jesus Christ. What would it look like if the body of Christ became an agent of reconciliation rather than contributing to strife and division. It's intended to be a group that is diverse, but also unified in Jesus Christ. It's interesting, we could add other categories to this, I suppose, uh, like Aggie nor T-Sip, right? Uh, One that sometimes occurs in our own congregation is uh, grown-up and college student. Right, we see that division sometimes. So uh, if you are a, a grown-up, so to speak, you may find yourself at times saying, those college students make my life inconvenient. I pull up and they took my parking place, my spot in the pew. They're driving on my roads, filling up my town. And so we have this division at times. Uh, It happens in the other direction, by the way. College students may be tempted to look at those that are older and say, what do they have to contribute 
to me. A, a number of years ago, uh, I was sitting with a group of student leaders, uh, leaders of Christian organizations at A&M. This was 10 or 12 years ago. And there were a few pastors around the table and these uh, Christian student leaders. And uh, one of the questions we asked these student leaders was, why is it that so many in these on-campus Christian organizations are not also connected to a local body of believers, to the local church? And I'll never forget this student said, well, here's the thing. When we come into this student organization, uh, we see these people who are, uh, they're singing songs we know, and they're passionate about Jesus, and they're excited, and they're enthusiastic, and they have energy. And then we go to church, and we sit behind a middle-aged guy without a lot of energy who is bald, and he doesn't look like he has a whole lot of passion for Jesus. And I'll never forget uh, Blake Jennings, another pastor here on staff, in his gentle way, looked at that student and said, you know, though, for all you know, that little bald man is a spiritual hero. You've just never taken the time to talk to him. And one of the beauties of the body of Christ is it forces us, in a sense, to sit near and next to people that we don't understand, that are not like us, maybe even people we naturally wouldn't like. And now that was 12 years ago, and uh, those students are now becoming the little bald man. Right? It happens. The body of Christ is intended to be diverse and unified so that when we come together, we come not primarily to fulfill our own needs, but to worship Jesus Christ together as a diverse and unified group of believers. Right? So that the book of Ephesians chapter 4 says there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Diverse but unified. Under one Savior, one faith. So that's who the church is. So then let's ask this question then. What are the marks of a church? What marks a church? How do we know that something is a church as opposed to any other type of organization? How do we know what is a true church as opposed to a false church? As I thought about this topic over the course of the week, I ran across an old photograph of uh, my youngest and oldest. This is from a few years ago. Uh, They were playing dress up. I don't know how well you can see that, but my son, who was three or four at the time, uh, was dressed like a doctor. He had the uh, lab coat. He had the stethoscope. He has a warm, inviting smile. Uh, You would want a doctor that friendly. So there are certain uh, things that mark him where you go, he looks like a doctor. Right? Some stuff adds up. On the other hand, if he walked into the examination room uh, at your doctor's office and said, I think you need a kidney transplant, you might have reason to doubt that he's really a doctor. Because some things don't add up. Right? He certainly appears quite young. Uh, he may not have a medical degree. His stethoscope is plastic with a heart. Uh, <laughs> He's carrying a blanket, right? There are certain things that you may go, uh, this doesn't appear to actually be a doctor. So although on the surface, there are some superficial marks that might make you go, maybe a doctor. Uh, There are other things that don't add up. Similarly, when we talk about organizations in the world, uh, there are organizations that superficially may appear to be a church, but are not. In fact, there are some organizations that say they are churches, 
but biblically don't meet the criteria. And then there are other organizations that are doing wonderful work alongside of the church, but they may focus on a particular demographic or a particular task. And so they are not a local church, although they may and do often have valuable things to contribute. So the question we want to ask is, in order to call something a church, what is it we want to look for? What marks a church? I'm going to give you three marks of a local church. The first one is this, orthodox doctrine. By orthodox, I simply mean that the church's doctrine conforms to historical Christian doctrine. What all Christians of all eras believe. And let me be clear, uh, we are a church at Grace that we are premillennial, we are dispensational, we hold to a pre-tribulational rapture. Uh, Now, you may not know what any of those terms actually mean, but those are doctrinal distinctives that mark us as a particular local congregation. However, those distinctives are not the same as what all Christians everywhere must believe. So there are certain doctrinal distinctives that may mark one church out from another or one denomination from another related to baptism or end times or a number of things. And then there are other things that we say, now, if you don't believe these things, you are not a biblical church, All right? So Paul will say to Titus, uh, You have to teach, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Uh, What are those things then that all Christian churches must believe to be called truly Christian? I'm going to offer what I think are the primary ones this morning. And we won't go into these in detail because of time, but I'm going to walk through a few. All right, first is this, the authority of the scripture. Every Christian church will hold to the authority of the Bible. And they may use different words to frame that. We are a church that says we believe in the inerrancy and inspiration of God's word. That is, we believe that it is without error in the original manuscripts and it was inspired by God, that the words of the scripture are God's words and therefore they are authoritative for what we do. Every Christian church holds to the authority of God's word. All right, second, the triune God as creator and redeemer. What I mean is that the Trinity is not optional to be a Christian church. This is why there are organizations that call themselves church that don't meet the biblical criteria because many cults and heresies deny the Trinity. So, for example, uh, the Mormon faith denies the Trinity. The Jehovah's Witness faith denies the Trinity. So, from a historical perspective... Those gatherings are not the same as a Christian church. Triune God is creator and redeemer. The fall and original sin. If you don't believe that we are born sinners and that we are all sinners, then you have ventured into what the church in the fourth century defined as heresy. If you believe people are basically good enough to merit eternal life, then you have ventured outside the boundaries of Christian orthodoxy. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus is fully God, fully man, a real person who came and lived and died for our sins and rose again bodily. Salvation by grace through faith. That is that we are saved by the grace of God through trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, the second coming of Christ. 
One good way to think about historic Christian orthodoxy is to go read some of the early creeds like the Apostles' Creed. If an organization denies uh, tenets of the faith that have been affirmed since the very early days of the church, then that organization has ventured outside of the Christian faith and they are not a Christian church. They are something else. So a church is marked by orthodox doctrine. Secondly, a church is marked by organized leadership, that there is a leadership structure within the body of Christ that marks a local church. And as you look at the New Testament, that leadership structure was typically a plurality of elders. So when Paul left Titus in Crete to build and establish the church, he said to him, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined." He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Uh, We as a church here have elders. We have a plurality of elders. Now in the first century, those elders in local congregations were typically appointed by the apostles. Uh, Since we don't have any apostles around anymore, our elders are elected by the congregation. So we have a plurality of elders. And part of the reason for that is because no one individual other than Jesus Christ operates with the authority to tell the whole church what to do. So a plurality of elders prevents any one person from exercising undue control. And what the elders essentially do here and in the body of Christ is they keep us, so to speak, between the guardrails. They say, this is the doctrine of the church. So don't step to the left or right of it. They say, this is the mission of the church to make disciples are the things you're doing, the programs you're instituting, contributing to or detracting from that mission. They keep us as a local church focused on certain visionary distinctives like we have always been a church that believes in students and families worshiping together. And so our elders govern by saying, are you within the rails? And the early church had elders that essentially functioned in the same way. They also had deacons, which were servants who attended to things like facilities and finances and the food distribution among the saints. So in First Timothy, Paul says, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Deacons were also uh, men who were filled with character, who served in the church. And so the church had this organized leadership structure to help it function as it should. So there was orthodox doctrine, there was organized leadership, and then thirdly, a church regularly practices the ordinances of the Christian faith. As you look at 1 Corinthians 11 and 12, most specifically, we see baptism and communion. When we participate in baptism, uh, men and women are acknowledging that I've trusted in Jesus. Uh, When you trust in Jesus, as we said, you enter the universal church with a big C, right? But baptism traditionally has been your 
initiation into the local church with a little c. All the way back to the days of the apostles. That's why at Grace, in order to become a member of Grace Bible Church, you have to have gone through baptism. Not because we believe baptism is essential for eternal life, because, but because baptism is a pro- public profession of faith to say what I have believed, I now proclaim, and it is an entrance into the visible body of Christ. We celebrate communion because Jesus commanded us to do it regularly to remember his death on our behalf. So at Grace, we celebrate communion once a month, the first Sunday of every month so that we gather together to remember what he has done. So orthodox doctrine, organized leadership, and ordinances. A few years ago, I was reading a blog post by a relatively well-known Christian speaker and author. And uh, this author was arguing that the local church isn't really necessary for spiritual growth. He said, look, I don't really connect with God through singing and through going to church. So I connect with God through hikes in the woods and spending time with my family. And as I look at the scripture, here's what I say is those are, those are actually wonderful ways to connect with God, but they don't replace The church, because there are marks of the church and there are things that the church does that happen in no other context. Because when we come together, the spirit of God is present in and among us in a special way. So that the author of Hebrews will say in Hebrews chapter 10, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I believe everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is expected to be a part of a local church, to grow, to serve. Parachurch organizations often contribute a vital function to helping in the ministry of the local church. But particularly for the college students in the room, I want to urge you to consider that that your on-campus organization does not replace the body of Christ. And one of the reasons why is because if I simply join an organization where everybody is my age, everybody looks like me, where everybody is somebody that I like, then I actually forfeit a vital part of growth, which is learning the patience and the forbearance and the understanding that comes from gathering with a body of believers who are not all like me. And so that's who the church is. That is what marks the church Third and last, what is the church called to do? What is the church called to do? Three things. One is worship. We come together to worship God. We worship him uh, through the ordinances. We worship him through prayer. We pray to God. We exalt God in our prayers. We proclaim who he is and what he's done. And we worship him in song. Now it's interesting. Church is really about the only place that uh, grown people gather together to sing together in public. Right? And, and no matter how good or bad a singer you are, uh, you're expected to come in and sing. Right? This is about the only place. Uh, actually, I take that back. There is one other place we do that. Aggie football games. Right? We get together in a stadium. And what do we do? We put our arms around each other. And we do something weird with our legs. Right? We intertwine our legs together somehow. And we sway back and forth and we sing a song of love to our alma mater. And why do we do that? Because there's an emotional connection to our school, our fellow Aggies, the team, an emotional connection 
that is stirred up when we sing that isn't there when we just speak or listen. And in the church, there is an emotional connection to God that happens when we put truth about God to music and a connection with one another. And so music through the centuries has been used to connect our hearts as well as our minds to God. Also, music helps us remember. All of us know that there are songs that are stuck in our heads that we cannot remove. They're there for life, right? There was an ad uh, that was around when I was a kid that is permanently stuck in my head, and it's an ad for Tootsie Rolls, right? Everything I think I see becomes a Tootsie Roll to me, right? Some of you hear the song in your head even now. You'll go home singing it. Every so often, if I see a Tootsie Roll, it pops into my head. Some of you will remember the old Double Dave song that used to be on the radio here in town. And you still associate Double Daves with a great taste and a smile on your face, don't you? Because music drives words into our mind in a way that simply listening to them does not. Many of you will forget my sermon, but you'll remember the songs we sing. And so we come together as a group to sing these songs together, to look one another in the eye at times and say, Here we are together to sing and to pray and to proclaim who Jesus is. So we come together to worship him. So the scripture says it this way. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Uh, I can't even tell you how many times the scripture says, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, over and over and over. One of the most repeated commands in scripture. So we come together to worship. We come together to grow. God has placed every person in this room in a position to help others grow. You have spiritual gifts, you have abilities, you have experiences that can contribute to the growth of others. So in Ephesians chapter four, Paul says he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You have something to contribute to the body of Christ that that nobody else can contribute. Your experiences, your personality, your gifts that God has made you to have so that you can encourage the growth of the body of Christ so it can be mature. When we all come together and we are different in our outlook, in our understanding, then we contribute to the growth of others. When we serve, we we, we grow. When we sing music and styles, that may make us uncomfortable, we grow in patience and kindness. Uh, A few years ago, I was tasked with helping to serve uh, our preschool uh, ministry by teaching a preschool uh, devotional. And I grew and learned from that experience because it pushed me to do something that I was not normally comfortable with, which is talking to preschoolers. And I learned from that. One thing I learned was never ask toddlers a rhetorical question. (laughs) There's no such thing as rhetorical to them. They will all answer. But I learned patience. I learned how to be a bit clearer with what I said, a bit simpler with my words. So we come together to hear from the word of God, to serve, to participate, so we can grow to be mature. 
So we worship, we grow, and then we, we multiply. We come in here and we worship God. We grow in our faith. We hear from the word of God. And then we go out into the world to have an impact, to make disciples, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Last words Jesus said to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, The early church took that command very seriously. And they had an impact in their world because they did come together to remember what God had done in Jesus Christ that Jesus died and rose again so we can have eternal life. And Jesus was one day going to come back and set up his kingdom. And in the meanwhile, we proclaim that good news and we reflect his kingdom in the world. The body of Christ has been commissioned by Jesus to be his ambassadors. And as I look at the subject of the church, I have to ask, are we, Are we giving the weight the scripture gives to the power of the church when we focus on those things God has called us to do and when we are obedient to his word? Let me ask a few quick questions of application as we close. First one is this. Do you know Jesus Christ? Are you a member of the church with a big C? As we talk about the church, we have to recognize that uh, it is possible to be a member of, or an attender of a local church, church with a little c, and not know Jesus and be a member of the universal church? Do you know him? Have you trusted in Jesus and his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sin and eternal life? If so, then you are a member of his church. If not, what God is calling you to do today by way of application is to become a believer in Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus? Are you connected to the body? Do you know people in this room? Or are you distant? Do you keep the church at arm's length? Are you connected to the body? Maybe you're in a home group or a Sunday morning group. Maybe you have a group of friends in this room who help you grow. Are you connected to the body of Christ? Are you serving? Are you using your gifts for the benefit of the body of Christ? Are you growing in your faith? Are you engaged in the study of scripture with a group of believers who can help you grow? Does your spiritual walk look closer to the Lord now than it did five years ago? Are you growing in your faith as a result of your connection with the body of Christ? And are you making disciples? Are you going out into your world, your job, your classes, your neighborhood, to share the good news of Jesus Christ so others can join his people? If you, if you hear these and you think, I don't know exactly how to connect, I don't know exactly how to grow as a part of the body of Christ, feel free to come talk with me or to come talk with one of our pastors or elders and we can point you in the direction of some ways you can connect, some ways you can use your gifts, some ways you can be a part of the body of Christ for worship and growth and multiplication because the body of Christ, the church, is the organization that Jesus built, that Jesus protects and has commissioned to do his work in the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful to be a part of your people and we're grateful for the church. Thank you 
for the promise that your son will protect your church until the day he returns. And I pray uh, we would continue to believe in the organization that Jesus loves because he cares for us. Father, give us the ability to make disciples. Give us the ability to grow and continually stir up our hearts and minds to worship you. We thank you for this time. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.